All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Well, today on this episode, we're going to talk about a uh, difficult topic. We're going to talk about why does there seem to be this obsession on the left with drag queen story hour and, and beyond that, this having intimate sexual discussions with children. Now, we've talked about this a little bit before, but today, we're going to do a deep dive in the philosophy which is informing this because it's too easy. It is too easy for conservatives to just say this is just some sort of perverse offshoot. This is some sort of, you know, you know, super small segment within within the country that is pushing this and they can be ignored. I'm here to tell you, no they can't. We're going to explain why and we're going to explain why in the worldview that is being used to push this, not only do they think this is perfectly acceptable, but they think it's something to be celebrated, and they will go so far as to advocate punishing people who do not agree. All of that coming up on this episode of Making the Argument. Thank you for joining us on this episode. We hope that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving week last week. I know we all did here, and Tina and Nick ate quite a bit of sushi. It all looked pretty incredible. If you haven't seen it, head over to Nick's Instagram because he did publish a video on that. If you have any thoughts on today's episode or would like to tell us about your Thanksgiving week, I hope you'll go to the link in the uh, description of this episode, join our volley chat, and say hello there. All right, quick round of introductions. I'm Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, your host here on Making the Argument, and other than that, a pretty good guy. My beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees. Hello, everyone. Christian Hines, our historian and political prognosticator. Hello. Nicholas Hamilton, producer of Producers, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. Hold up, I'm not the producer anymore. That's right, and Sour Patch Lids, the person that is taking over the production from Hamilton, that, who make, we're taking right? to a farm to run free. Let me make a quick note on that. Um, I was talking to one of our listeners, Joe, over the weekend, over email, and he was he was wondering, you know, Hamilton, what are you doing now? Yeah. And now that Lydia has taken over the producer role and is helping, you know, get future guests on the show and, you know, helping us structure the podcast, uh, my role really consists around the production uh, here in the studio, running all the cameras and the audio and everything. So I'm still here. I'm still on the podcast, but I'm not the producer. I'm now the glorified button pusher in the room. So everything is good. We haven't gotten rid of him yet. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right, right, right. All right, listen, let's let's go ahead and jump in because I, I know, you know, again, it's, it's a difficult topic. Christian likes to use the term the ick factor, right? And whenever we're talking about something like this, um, th there there is a propensity for people to kind of tune out. Here's why I'm going to encourage you not to. Um, if you're not willing to understand the origin of this and why it's happening or... If you're willing to say, oh, I understand the origin, it's it's horrible, it's evil, it's sin, and that's it, and I don't get... No, you need to understand philosophically how people justify this. Because that's how it gets into your schools. 
That's how it gets into institutions. That's how it gets into museums. That's how it gets into churches. And the next thing you know, you wake up and you're living in a society you don't understand anymore. And all of a sudden, you're the person on the outside looking in, wondering how in the heck this happened. And the reason why is because people that recognize that this is dangerous weren't willing to understand the culture in which the culture that made it possible. So that's what we're going to do today. Now, let, let's start this off by going over a couple of things that have happened recently. I think it was about a year ago, two years ago. I can't remember really, but I, I, I made a prediction. I put it out on Twitter or Facebook and I said, look, within five years, we're, we're going to see an, an active push to kind of normalize pedophilia. And people said I was nuts. That was a bridge way too far. It was never going to happen. And then shortly after that, there was a college professor. I think it was at VCU. Right? Don't quote me on that. I think it was at VCU. But he, he got caught. He was doing some study and some research. And he was encouraging use of the term minor attracted persons because pedophilia was essentially had a negative connotation to it. Now, what's important to understand is there was a big backlash against him for this. I think he actually lost his position over it, which I think a lot of people were surprised. And, and I think it served as this element of con, kind of um, confidence that, okay, that's that's too far. By the way, it was an ODU professor. ODU. I'm sorry. It wasn't VCU. It was ODU. Still in Virginia. Yeah, it was o ODU. Old Dominion University, not Virginia Commonwealth. I apologize to VCU. But that, that all happened. He got fired. Right. So a lot of people would say, OK, yeah, they, the university did the appropriate thing. Maybe this is an indication that even if this is too far for academia, we're, we're not we're not close. We're certainly not within the five year realm. And then all of a sudden you start to see things from libs of TikTok come out where we're seeing this this increased push by teachers um, especially even at the preschool and elementary school level, talking about how they, they love having these conversations with, with their kids and how it's perfectly and age appropriate to have these sort of conversations about gender fluidity and about transgender and about pronouns with kindergartners and with first graders and with second graders. And then all these, and then you have the, the bill in Florida, which was dubbed by the left as the don't say gay bill, even though that wasn't the rule. All it said was you're not allowed to have these, these conversations about, about sexual orientation and things like that with students third grade or younger, right? Only For up to fourth grade. Yeah. Fourth yeah. grade. Before, <laughs> you got to hold off till fourth grade and oh everybody to include Disney lost their crap. Like just absolutely lost it. They, it, it wasn't even just that they, they maliciously lied about the contents of what was in the yes. bill because I remember there was opinion polling that was done, nonpartisan too, um, in Florida. This was during the the reelection campaign for DeSantis this year, and they found out that a majority of Democrats in Florida supported the bill when they were actually told what was in the bill. Yeah. It was something like seventy plus percent of Floridians were like, "Oh yeah, that makes total sense," including a majority of Democrats yep. and yep. a majority of all ethnic groups as well. But the problem was is that the major sources, of the, the major cultural institutions, did have a huge problem with the bill and were perfectly comfortable either in their ignorance of what the bill actually did or deliberately lying about it to include a company like Disney. Yeah, they said it was censorship. Yeah, which is hugely influential, not just within you know with with. I mean, across the country and across uh, media and entertainment, but especially, obviously, Disney is directed toward kids, right? And so this is this is what they were pushing. Then you had um, this whole thing with uh, uh, Balenciaga, right? So this this designer, and they got they had this whole ad campaign showing little kid little kids with these like BDSM teddy bears. 
like these these erotically dressed up teddy bears and things like that. And it, and again, it was so bad that even people like Kim Kardashian have been associated with them were like, yeah, that's 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 too far. Then you had this play. I think it's called it's yeah downstate. And um, I, I was reading a little bit about it. Let, we can go to the uh, the article there, the the Fox News article. And um, I, I was reading a little bit about what this is. So the Washington Post came out with this this Twitter headline saying that, you know, it's about pedophilia and it's brilliant. And so you look at it and as the post-drama critic notes, the predators who've completed their prison terms are depicted not as monsters, but rather as complicated troubled souls and wrote that the audience will learn what each pedophile has done. He also wrote that the most disagreeable character is one of the victims of pedophilia. Quote, we are in effect asked to judge for ourselves the magnitude of ongoing torment each deserves. It develops here as an agonizing moral question, one that our retributive correctional culture would rather not have to debate. So what I, the reason why I read that off is I, I want to make something very clear here because you see this within the minor attracted persons. You see this with kind of the push of talking about, you know, exploring gender or exploring sexuality at increasingly young ages within our education system. And then you look at the nature of what this play was trying to do. This play was not coming out saying pedophilia is fine. You should totally engage in it. That's not what the play was doing. Instead, what it was doing was taking a, a, a portion of the issue, right, the corrections component. And they were creating a narrative around that that made you sympathize with the people that had been convicted and served time for pedophilia. And then they made one of the most disagreeable characters, according to the film critic, right, a person that had been a victim of pedophilia. So right off the bat, we're, we're creating a situation, they're creating a situation in your mind where you're sympathizing with the pedophiles, right, and you're feeling animosity toward the victim of pedophilia. Now, you see the same thing with what that college professor at ODU was attempting to do, right? They were attempting to make this idea of, oh, it's minor attracted persons. It's this idea that they're, they're dealing with something that we need to study and better understand. So it's this, it's this idea of it's not their fault, right? We're going to do what we do with pretty much everything else in society right now. It's a medical issue. It's a mental health issue. And then we're going to engender sympathy because we're going to we're going to have Hollywood is going to come up Hollywood or Broadway or whatever is going to come up with stories to tell us where they they attempt to pick the most sympathetic character possible even if they have to create it out of whole cloth. And then they make who we would all be naturally sympathetic to the victim to be the potential bad guy in the story. All in order to just have a difficult conversation about our our the correctional institutions within our society and how much torment that they need to face. Now, I think a lot of us are, we're already, we're already thinking of our mind, like the, the, the regular arguments that, that would come up from this, like, Oh, Oh, you're really concerned about the convicted pedophile. Are you concerned about the victim I was or victims say, of the convicted pedophile from the uh, it, it's, it's really shocking to see something like this coming from the words or violence crowd. Yes. Yeah, words are violence, but if you sexually abuse a minor child, we're going to write an expose basically glorifying you yeah. and and in doing so through our publication, we're going to uh minimize the impact of of the damage that you did to completely innocent people. Yeah. I mean, whatever whatever happened to words are violence. First off, words are not violence. Yeah. I'll just leave it at that. And and you know what? The Washington Post can publish whatever on earth they want to publish, but don't tell me that, you know, you said this once where it was like the left does something. The right 
says that's wrong or that's bad policy or that will lead to negative consequences yeah, we or second it. and third order effects, <laughs> whatever it is. It, it doesn't even have to be on this issue. It could be economics too, whatever it is, right? The left does something. The right points out, hey, there's an issue with this thing that you're doing. And then the left comes back and makes the entire discussion about the right pointing it out, right? Republicans yeah. pounce, Yep. right? They, they completely twist the narrative into making the story about the Republican reaction to the thing the left is doing rather than the thing the left is doing. Yeah, the thing so that's actually being done. How much you want to bet that the next uh, the next story the Washington Post is going to put out is going to be about how Republicans react to yeah. whatever this thing is or whatever the story is that they're pushing on this narrative next. Like, I guarantee you that's the next stage in the process. We see this on everything. Yeah. Well, and, and that and that is the point, right? This is a process because, again, in the minds of most people, they look at this and this is so beyond the pale and it's so hideous that they they don't understand it. Now, this this kind of leads me into okay, let's look let's look a little bit into the recent history of this, and I don't mean five years, I mean let's you go mean back like fifty. I mean let's go back <laughs> to there. There was a petition. It was the French petition against the age of consent laws. Now, in 1977, a position was addressed to the French Parliament calling for the abrogation of several articles of the age of consent law. Now, a number of French intellectuals, including Michael Foucault, uh, Jacques Derrida, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, and, and several others. they got a huge list here. The reason why I mentioned those three is because if you look at concepts behind queer theory, if you look at concepts behind structural Marxism, if you look at deconstructionism, which part of deconstructionism is this idea is that we're going to look at everything. We're going to look at everything within society and tradition, and we're going to deconstruct it, right, in, a, in order to show what? Well, in order to show the various power structures, structures and hierarchies that are in there to use to you know, harm the oppressed people to the benefit of the oppressors. Right, Sartre was was big in the existentialist movement. One of the things that you'll find common among this entire list of intellectuals that they have here is that they tend to be anti-Judeo-Christian. They tend to be very, very skeptical of the traditional family. Um, they tend to be very opposed to uh, capitalism. Right, and they a lot of them are heavily influenced by Marx and critical theory. So, oh, there's that term again, critical theory. Now, we've been programmed to think whenever you hear critical theory, we're talking about critical race theory. No, critical theory is a whole theory from which things like critical race theory and, as it turns out, queer theory comes from. And, so, it, and, and it's worth pointing out that critical theory has its roots in Marxism. Yes, it heavily influenced by Marx. There, there's, there's differentiation between things that Marx and Engels advocated for, like Das Kapital and the Communist Manifesto, but it's still heavily influenced. Now, what, what we've talked about before is this idea that uh, Marx and critical theory early on uh, attempted to kind of, you know, classify everything within society based off of your economic status, right? Workers of the world unite, right? That was that yes. was the, the, the clearing call of the Communist Manifesto. The history of the world is a history of class struggle, in the words of Marx. I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing there, yeah. but but it, it's the idea that everything is built around power structures. That's still critical theory, right? But that power structure is inherently economic yes. in nature. So why, why are we talking about this? Again, if you want to understand how people are about to justify things that you never thought possible in your lifetime, here's how. People don't justify this because they think, you know what? Today I've woke up and I've decided I like evil. That's not what they're doing. They, they've created they've created a setup where it's like, no, 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 what, we're the good guys and the people opposing us or advocating against us are the bad guys. And conservatives are just bogged. Like, how could we be the bad guys by standing up against pedophilia? Let me explain. 
If you take critical theory and you try to explain everything by economic status, it didn't work. That was the problem. Laborers did better in free capitalistic private property owning societies than they ever did in the Marxist societies. So all of a sudden, but through practical experience for most people, especially the ones that really lived through it, there was such a contrast that Marx trying to explain everything through economics didn't make sense. And the reason why is important because the reason why motivates the evolution of this into a different direction. It didn't make sense because class is not a fixed thing. Yes. You can be born dirt poor and die the richest man on earth. Mm -hmm. And so because class is not a fixed thing, and there's multiple studies on this that show that over time, people enter different different income brackets all throughout their life. Yeah. Marx predicted that the proletariat would have a revolution within an industrialized society. Once they established their own class consciousness, they would seize the means of production, establish a dictatorship of the proletariat. Yeah. Eventually the state would wither away and it would become it, it would become a, a communist utopia. And that has never happened anywhere. Every single communist revolution actually has taken place in de-industrialized or non-industrialized societies. He thought that it would take place in, in countries like Germany and the UK and, and the United States. And instead it took place in, you know, czarist Russia mm -hmm. and in, um, you know, post-imperialist China in the early um, 1900s. And those were not industrialized societies. And so Marx's own predictions on how his theory would play out proved to be incorrect. And so adherence to Marxism mm -hmm. or adherence to a soft form of Marxism they looked at the history of the 20th century and they looked at the predictions that Marx made and they said, well, those two things aren't correct. Now, we still hold his oh, yeah. views. We still want the stuff to happen, but it's not happening the but way the Marx revolution it can't be brought about through yeah. the means that Marx predicted. So there has to be something else. Well, and, and what's interesting is when you look at, again, if you can remember that critical theory is heavily influenced by Marxism and then you can remember that critical race theory comes up next. Well, what's the benefit of critical race theory to those that want to be able to push this particular worldview? Well, especially if you're in the West, you can look at a lot of the arguments that are made within critical race theory with respect to, um, you know, system, you know, systematic uh, oppression and racism within the legal system. That absolutely happened, right? Absolutely happened. Um, you, you can look at institutions of slavery. You can look at Jim Crow laws, not to mention the fact that if you look at a lot of people in the West, they actually understand the culpability of their own governments and their own systems that, that, engaged in the slave trade or engaged in the repression of people or of racial minorities, right? And, and the racism that was inherent in that. And so you, you have evidence that yes, there was something wrong here. Now what they're attempting to do now is say that never went away. All the institutions are still problematic. And oh, by the way, if you listen to Ibram X. Kendi, who's, who's very open about it, he comes right out and says, you can't be an anti-racist unless you're anti-capitalist, right? So once again, they're, they're sneaking in the back door what they really want and the, what the real problem is. And the real problem is capitalism. The real problem is this whole concept of individual liberty separate from the state, right? That That's all a big problem for them. Now, what's, what's the problem? What's the other side of the problem for them when it comes to using race as the determining factor or the determining characteristic for the worldview they're trying to push? It's limiting. It's limiting because if 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 you're black and I'm white, well then I, I guess I'm always the oppressor and you're always the oppressed, right? And and it's constant revolution, and so once again you you have you have an approach that they've taken, which is a, a little bit more palatable 
for people to understand because there are demon there's demonstrable evidence of institutional racism that took place within a lot of you know Western societies. Again, you can debate to you you can debate all day long to what degree it's still impacting society, but there's no question that it happened and there's no question that it impacts society. But the problem is it's still limiting. So what's the advantage of queer theory, which also stems from critical theory? is that now all of a sudden we're not using the economics because that doesn't seem to play out in reality. We're not using race because that seems to be limited. Now all of a sudden we're using sexuality and sexuality all right, is something that on some level every single human being experiences. And if you can make sexuality or sexual preferences or sexual proclivities or whatever it is, if you can make it a core component of someone's identity, right, now, all of a sudden, you have something which is theoretically unifying, provided that you can get people to buy into that ideology, and then you can turn it against the things that you're trying to dismantle. I love that we're highlighting this because I've never heard this idea before. I like the idea that they moved from talking about class and that kind of stuff to talking about something that's a little bit more fixed. Like I thought race was kind of a good approach and then this whole gender thing. Gender is kind of interesting because it changes or they say it can change. It actually can't. And it's, it's much more nuanced. And I think there's going to be a lot more conversation coming out of this. But I've never heard this idea on any other show or from any other thinker talking about how they went from using class change to create this kind of chaos to using this sexuality and this queer stuff. And it's so interesting to me because it's, it's becoming more clear why they're doing it. And, and just so nobody thinks that I'm just sitting here kind of dreaming all of this up, let, let's go to the next. This is a City Journal article. Article. In this article by City Journal, they're talking about um, Gail S. Rubin's essay, Thinking Sex, Notes for a Radical Theory of the Politics of Sexuality. Now, here's what I'm going to say. I probably should have prefaced this. If you do have any young ears around, you're going to want to, you're going to want to, the ick factor is you don't want to dismiss it from the room. All right. <laughs> So the, the author in this city journal says, start with queer theory, the academic discipline born in 1984 with the publication of Gail S. Rubin's essay, Thinking Sex, notes for a radical theory of the politics of sexuality. You'll notice that within critical theory, everything goes to politics. Beginning in the late 1970s, Rubin, a lesbian writer and activist, had immersed herself in the subcultures of leather, leather bondage, orgies, fisting, and sadomasochism in San Francisco, migrating through an ephemeral, ephemeral network of BDSM, bondage, domination, sadomasochism clubs, literary societies, and New Age spiritualist gatherings. In thinking sex, Rubin sought to reconcile her experiences in the sexual underworld with the broader forces of American society. Following the work of French theorist Michael Foucault, remember the guy that was on the, he was on the list, um, Rubin sought to expose the power dynamics that shaped and repressed human sexual experience. Go ahead and scroll down a little bit. Modern Western societies appraise sex acts according to a hierarchical, hierarchical system of sexual value, Rubin wrote. Marital reproductive heterosexuals are alone at the top of the erotic pyramid. Clamoring below are unmarried monogamous heterosexuals and couples, followed by most other heterosexuals. Stable, long-term lesbian and gay male couples are verging on respectability. But uh, barred dykes and promiscuous gay men are hovering just above the groups at the very bottom of the pyramid. The most despised sexual caste currently include transsexuals, transvestites, fetishists, sadomasochists, sex workers, such as prostitutes and porn models, and and the lowliest of all, listen to this, listen to what she, this is her term, 
those whose eroticism transgresses generational boundaries. All right, I'm going to say that again. I want you to think about what, what? she what she means. <laughs> those whose eroticism transgresses generational boundaries. It's a very careful way of wording that. It's a very careful way of wording pedophilia. That's what it is. Yes, yes. <laughs> People that want to have sex or sexual encounters with children. So understand that, once again, what are we talking about within queer theory? We're talking about power structures. We're talking about what's at the top of the pyramid of this power structure, what's at the bottom of the pyramid of this power structure. All right, and then it says Rubin's project, and by extension that of queer theory, was to interrogate, deconstruct, and subvert the sexual hierarchy and usher in a world beyond limits, much like the one she'd experienced in San Francisco. The key mechanism for achieving this turn was the thesis of social construction. The new scholarship on sexual behavior has given sex a history and created a constructivist alternative to the view that sex is a natural and pre-political phenomenon. Rubin wrote, Underlying this body of work is an assumption that sexuality is constituted in society and history, not biologically ordained. This does not mean that biological capacities are not prerequisites for human sexuality. It does mean that human sexuality is not comprehensible in purely biological terms. So once again, what we're doing, and this is critical to critical theory, is we're incorporating this idea of these power structures, these hierarchies, and it's the idea that what we know or what we consider to be normal within sexual behavior is basically been forced upon us, either by religion, by society in general. Oftentimes, I'm, I'm not saying that she directly claims it here, but oftentimes capitalism, they, they literally blame capitalism for the family structure. So understand, if, if you're taking this view of human sexuality. If your view of human sexuality doesn't start with the idea that, well, of course, sex is a natural biological, you know, uh, um, imperative with respect to the propagation of the species, right? Even if you're just using kind of like a secular worldview when it comes to understanding this, if if you're now saying that the the sexual acts, um, basically should be viewed through this lens of these power structures of individual identity and the idea that there is no, there is no moral, um, there's no moral boundaries that should be put upon it. That, that the moral boundaries that we see are actually forms of oppression. So they're saying the most oppressed in society are pedophiles. They're saying they're, 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 they're the they're bottom. Saying they're, they're saying they are the, the biggest victims of our societal and, and keep in mind, Structure. this was written in the 80s. Can I point out that there's actually a, um amazing article that um, was published on the Heritage Foundation's page. I, I might actually um, end up sending that around to y'all because I don't think any of, any of um, anybody here has actually read it. It's very long, but it's worth reading. And there's a little bit of overlap between that and this. Um, now, they were talking more about cultural Marxism in general and explaining what that was and how that emerged. Yeah. But um, one of the components was is that at the end of the Cold War, it kind of seemed like that Marxism was was finished, right? You know, the, the collapse of the Iron Curtain, the liberation of Eastern Europe and the and the disintegration of the Soviet Union. I mean, who on earth would would still think that this ideology had any legs? And it was ironically enough at the end of the Cold War with the um, uh, the uh, um, I think it's called the Autumn of Nations in 1989 is when you started having these um, these new forms of critical theory really emerge within academia. 
it was the the discarding of the old form of Marxism, not just because the historical record was clear that it was a failure, but also because current political events that were going on at the time made it obvious that nobody could really advocate for that, not yeah. even the Marxists themselves. And as we pointed out earlier, by this point in time, even people on the radical left had realized that, oh, well, we can't really push our ideology through class means. That, that's just not going to work. Yeah. Um, so we need to find a better a better mechanism. And that's when in the late 80s and early 90s, really early 90s, like post-Cold War, immediately after the, the fall of the Soviet Union, you saw this explosion of academic um, articles and journals and publications that usually the general public wouldn't see, but people within academia would consume, that was pushing alternate forms of critical theory, like queer theory or like critical race theory. Mm -hmm. Um, I've brought this up actually multiple times on this podcast in previous episodes about how when I was doing um, my own research for a paper that I was writing for grad school, I stumbled across an article that was published in 1994. And this was almost 30 years ago. And the stuff that this um, that this academic was talking about, and it was a it was a paper about historiography and, and, and interpreting um, you know, like, like new ways to 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 look at like colonialism. Mm -hmm. And they weren't looking at it from like a geographic, you know, traditional historical standpoint of, oh, well, these countries are fighting over this piece of territory or something like that. They were looking at it from like an individualist perspective of how like, oh, well, you know, we've been ignoring the role of, of you know, you know, queer people or, or you know, racial minorities, you know, and and the language that was being used in this paper um was like straight out of the stuff that you would see on like Twitter today. Yeah. And I found that so fascinating that like it was confined to just academia in the 90s. I saw it firsthand, like I said, when I was writing this paper. And lo and behold, stuff that was confined to just academia in the late 80s and early 90s when Marxists within yeah. the university system were trying to find new ways to formulate their ideology, lo and behold, 25, 30 years later, it has become publicly discussed on the Washington Post's well, own and, website. And, and let me let me let me this is probably the last paragraph I'm gonna read from this, but it I, I need to read it. So they ask the question, where does this process end? So again, if if we're if we're treating, you know, all of our all of what we can to be our sexual norms as nothing more than heteronormative social power structures created by capitalists to oppress people, right? Where does the process end? He goes, at its logical conclusion, the abolition of restrictions on the behavior at the bottom end of the moral spectrum, pedophilia. Though she uses euphemisms such as boy lovers and men who love underaged youth, Rubin makes her case clearly and emphatically. In long passages throughout Thinking Sex, Rubin denounces fears of child sex abuse as erotic hysteria, rails against anti-child pornography laws, and argues for legalizing and normalizing the behavior of those whose eroticism transgresses generational boundaries. These men are not devils, but victims in Rubin's telling. Like communists, this is her quote now, like communists and homosexuals in the 1950s, boy lovers are so stigmatized that it is difficult to find defenders of their civil liberties, let alone for their erotic orientation, she explains. Consequently, the police have feasted on them. Local police, the FBI, and watchdog uh, postal inspectors have joined to build a huge apparatus whose sole aim is to wipe out the community of men who love underaged youth. In 20 years or so, when some of the smoke is cleared, it will be much easier to show that these men have been the victims of a savage and undeserved witch hunt. That's her quoted. That last part that I read, that's her quoted. So 
You need to understand that, again, this, this is not something where they're saying the, the language that they may be used now is the idea that maybe it's a mental disorder or maybe it's beyond their control. We should have sympathy for the fact that they're struggling with something. Or we should have sympathy for the fact that they may have also been victims at one point in their life when they were younger. And that's why we need to be, we need to be more cautious with respect to how we approach this subject. That is how it will start. But understand that what we're seeing through all this, and, and keep in mind, the, art, the, the head of this article is the real story behind Drag Queen Story Hour, right? The real push eventually is to say that, no, it, it was wrong to ever consider this evil, and in fact, anybody that thinks it's evil is a narrow-minded bigot that simply doesn't understand sexuality and is seeking to oppress people that are different from them. Now, so if it, you're going to tell me that, that that analysis that I just gave, if you're going to tell me that that's, that's far-fetched, that's a false, slippery slope, I'm going to tell you I think you're nuts. I think you're right, Nick. And I just wanted to throw in there, too, that when it comes to the idea of free speech, the question is always who decides. Because if we're trying to censor someone, we're trying to make hate speech go away or whatever, always 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 who decides and when i look at this i can't help thinking that when they decide who the victim is it's a very telling um exactly who it is that's choosing to paint which person as a certain victim because most normal sane people would paint the child as a victim in this situation not the abuser and they are choosing to paint an abuser as a victim, which is just really remarkable, really telling to me. Well, and, and part of the part of the um, process for choosing which child to victimize, I mean, well, they're basically trying to say that these children really aren't victims. They've just fallen in love with this person. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's really no way to um, the idea that a child can make this decision for themselves and just fall into love with this person the grooming exists for a reason. And I think the reason why they are um, so fixated on us using the term grooming is because they really want that term to go away completely. They want that to actually be the process of falling in love. And so with grooming, you've got certain steps. You identify your target, your victim, um, and they, they want to say it's not a victim. But in almost every case, there is a victim who is vulnerable in some way. They, they have identified vulnerability, um, whether it's a mental health issue or a struggling family life. And then after that, they gain trust and access to this child. And, um, you know, one of these things that we're running into right now are all of these people in the school systems who are grooming children along the sexual ideology um, track, which is, in my opinion of fetish. And so you're training children to be comfortable with a fetish. And um, so they've gained access um, and then they play a role in the child's life. Maybe it's um, a babysitter, a teacher, maybe it's somebody who uh, works around the family. Maybe they, Usually whatever Usually a position of influence and respect on some Sure. Um, I mean, that can be, or they, they play some kind of a role in the child's life where the child looks up to them in some way. Um, because if the child looks up to them, they're going to be less likely to question what they're telling them. And then what, what do they do? They, they want to isolate the child. Well, we're, we're starting to see this with let's break down the family. Let's hide from the family the fact that we're going to transition you. Let's hide this. And um, in other cases of abuse and 
in that situation, it's a fetish uh, that you're trying to get the child groomed into. Whereas in, in some situations, it's a full sexual relationship that they're trying to groom the child into. And so they start to create, um, they isolate the child away from their family. They explain that your parents aren't going to understand what what it is that we have. This is special, but I could get in trouble and I need you to be silent or quiet about this and let's not tell your parents. Well, now you've got a situation where if the parent finds out that this teacher transitioned the student into they, them or whatever, well, let's not tell the parent because I could get in trouble, right? That sounds really familiar. And then you've got um, creating secrecy around the relationship. That's um, basically part of that isolating. And then initiate, initiating sexual contact or initiating that fetish, initiating whatever it is that you're trying to do with that child. And then you're controlling the relationship. You're telling them that this is what we have. Um, uh, other people aren't going to understand and you have to continue on this path. If you want to walk away from this, you're in the wrong. And now you've created a child who thinks that they love this person and they want to protect this person. How many people have you seen who they have been sexually abused and then their biggest fear is that the person who abused them will get in trouble. They're really scared of that person getting in trouble because they have a an emotional connection with the person. That's part of what grooming is, is to cause that child to have an emotional tie to you to where they want to preserve you. And even if they don't necessarily want to do what it is you want to do anymore um, because it makes them uncomfortable or they can't figure out why they don't like it, um, they have been uh, pressured and and um, conditioned. conditioned into it. Yes. And so this whole thing is grooming. And I feel like um, if if they're really trying to push the pedophilia and that is now a thing, then the process of them targeting a child is really just the process of falling in love. Mm -hmm. And that is terrifying to me. The idea that grooming is now a dirty word that we're not allowed to use when we see it. When we see grooming, we're no longer allowed to say, hey, what you're doing matches all of the profile of grooming. Well, and, and I, so I think that's, I think that's right. You bring up another point that's really important here. And that's the whole idea of how do you get away with it? And, and there's, there's two ways. The first way I want to talk about is what you just talked. It's the whole idea of the separation and isolation from the family. And so it was interesting. We got this, this other article up here that, um, from, uh, huckmag.com and it's, it's Sophie Lewis wrote this book. She just, she just gave some speeches on this as well. And it's called, it's time to abolish the family, a manifesto for care and liberation. And then it says Sophie Lewis discusses her new book, which critiques the family as a capitalist construct and asks us to imagine a new world beyond it. So again, you, you see once again, this whole idea of this is a capitalist construct. Right, the family unit is a capitalist construct. Let's go to the next one. This is this became infamous because it was put up at the uh, Smithsonian. It was aspects and assumptions of whiteness and white culture, and you'll see there under family structure, the nuclear family, father, mother, two to three gil, uh, children, is the idea social unit. So it, it's this it's this idea once again of whether it's critical race theory, whether it's queer theory. Um, it, it's this push, whether it's anti-capitalist, it's this push to the family is the problem. Well, why would the family be the problem? It's, it's not to say that obviously all families are perfect. It's not to say that, you know, you know, mothers and fathers all make perfect decisions. There's obviously horrible family life, but what do you replace it with? And in every single one of their switch, it's always the community. Okay. Well, the community doesn't get to make 
you know, just these these random decisions which parents make on a day-to-day process. So really what it ends up being is the community within a state-run structure. Well, what does that sound like? Okay, well, once again, we're right back to critical theory. We're right back to Marxist theory. And even when they talk about, even when you're Marxist, it'll say like, oh, well, the end of Marxism is a is a completely stateless society. Oh, well, what runs it? Oh, a dictatorship of the proletariat. Okay, you're just calling the government something else. But what it comes down to is is that separation of the child from the family, right? Because if, if you think about it, what are they really talking about when they have this animosity toward family? Is it between is it between a husband and a wife? Yeah, maybe to some degree. But the real problem that they have, and you see this, especially within organizations like the NEA, right, and some of the teachers' units, this idea that we know best as the experts within education for what your child needs to be educated on. Oh, we saw that firsthand Multiple they came right out and said it. When you were running for re-election, I remember that there were people um, on the left that were basically making that argument that the yeah. parents don't know what's best. We do. Literally in Virginia, Terry McAuliffe lost the election that should have been his pretty much by all rights. He threw it away because he said one of the most boneheaded remarks ever about how I don't think parents should be telling teachers what to teach. Listen, um, it's just ahead of its time. That's what it is. It's not that it's boneheaded. He said it too soon. Yeah, because he said the, the quiet part out loud. Right. The goal is but they believe it. They believe that's the goal. And they thought they thought society was on board with it. But society wasn't quite there yet. Mm-mm. Give them time. Well, and, and the, the reason again, the reason why we're bringing all of this up, because if you're listening to this, you might be a little bit confused on why are we jumping to all these different issues? Because they're not different issues. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are people out there that don't know a single thing about critical theory, that don't consider themselves Marxists, that, that may be pedophiles. One of the biggest things that anytime I talk about this, you know, the left will always come out, oh, you mean like Dennis Hastert, the Republican Speaker of the House? I said, you know what the difference is between Dennis Hastert, Republican Speaker of the House, that was found guilty of pedophilia, and Michael Foucault? The difference is, is that when Dennis Hastert gets found out, he loses his possession, gets arrested, and we can't stand the guy anymore. And when Foucault does it, he gets a tenured position and becomes required reading. Exactly. That's the difference. And that's gets celebrated by the left. You yeah. show me anybody on the right that's celebrating Dennis Hassert. Listen, yeah. like, make no mistake. This, this type of thing, um, sexual deviance and um, pedophilia and all of these things exist across the entire spectrum of society, and no one group is immune to it. So, yes, there are going to be some Republicans that, are, that, that do this, and there are going to be some Democrats that do this, and there's Libertarians and whoever else. Whatever it is, these people exist in every, in every area. You're going to see it in the church. You're going to see it outside the church. The difference is, what do we do with these people? What does that group do with the people who what, offend? So as as far as I'm concerned, in my church, if we were to find out that something like this were to have happened, there would be massive repercussions. We don't condone anything like oh, that. Oh, yeah. You, you would um, be handed same, over the police faster than we could. Right. Yeah. Same, same with um, as a Republican. Because we have a certain set of ideals that we believe, when someone deviates from that, there are serious consequences. However, what we're starting to find on the left is that you can do these things and not be deviating from what they believe because this is what they believe. Well, and that and that's the point I wanted to make is that you you have because some people will look at this and be like, "That's absurd." I'm I'm a liberal or I'm on the left and I don't believe that this is okay. I'm not saying you as an individual do. 
What I am saying is that there are some people that do this because they are just, quite frankly, sexual deviants. That's it. But the, uh, there's other people that are advocating for this as part of a much larger, much more complex worldview. And if you don't understand that, you're never you're always going to misdiagnose the problem. You're always going to look at this as like this is the problem of a very, very small subsection of the population who are sexual deviants that want to have sex with kids. And you're going to completely miss the fact that there's an entire legal, social, political and economic theory that believes that you're the bad guy for calling it pedophilia. You're the bad guy for saying it. They believe that because this is part of a much more comprehensive way of viewing the world. And if you I don't properly is- understand that, if you don't properly understand that, it's going to, I mean, it's going to blindside you. I think that's exactly why conservatives are constantly playing catch up and they're always on defense because they don't see the bigger picture. All they see is, oh my gosh, why are they promoting this thing? Why are they promoting this thing? And I think it probably seems really disparate to them. But when you tie in like the degradation of the nuclear family, when you talk about stuff like minor attracted persons, it all kind of makes sense. When you look at the breakdown of marriage and the the coming in of the government to support single mothers, it all makes sense. Like they have, it, it makes me feel conspiratorial to say it, but there is actually an underlying driving philosophy that they're following. And I think that that's something that we really need to understand. We need like a crash course in it. Well, I mean, it would be conspiratorial if it weren't for the fact that like they have broadcast what they believe repeatedly. It's just that it's only been until recently the conservatives haven't paid any attention. I'm going to go back to that paper that I wrote. I didn't read that in 1994. Granted, I was just born, but like It wasn't until 2022 that I read this paper from 28 years earlier. And that's just one example. I mean, there's so many conservatives that they don't know who Foucault is. They barely have read any Marx. They haven't really read any of these political thinkers, mostly from like the postmodernist group that emerged in the 20th century. And so when conservatives don't read the materials from these people and see the publications that are coming out from these people, many cases were published decades ago, not even recently. They're not connecting the dots. They're not connecting the dots. And so therefore, when you hear somebody talk about these issues, it it sounds conspiratorial. It, it sounds like you're, you're the crazy person. And it's easy to paint conservatives who do talk about this as being either bigots or pearl ignorant clutchers. or pearl clutchers or conspiracy theorists, it's easy to dismiss them. And the media has done that. that. That's why we've said before, the left does something, the right reacts to it delayed, and then suddenly the story's about the right's reaction. And so to, to your point, Lydia, like, I mean, I, I definitely think, quite frankly, I still think we've kind of like scratched the surface of this in some ways. Like, like I really do yeah, think that sure. at some point in the future, we should consider doing like an entire crash course episode on what is cultural Marxism as a whole, because it's a phrase that has increasingly been thrown around, but I don't yeah. think it's necessarily been defined. Well, it, it, it's crazy too, because cultural Marxism always, the moment someone says cultural Marxism, someone goes, oh my gosh, you're a Nazi, because there was a Nazi mm-hmm. used the term. But the term was actually coined by, I believe, an Italian socialist. Um, but the other part I want to get into, because we're coming, we're coming up on, on the end of our time here. Um, I I also, I, I know Tina wants to say something, then we're going to get into the whole idea of what can you do about it? Because that's the other thing that we want to do here. We don't, we want to equip you to be able to make a good argument, but we also want to talk about practical things that you can do to push back against this. And because if the only way you're pushing back against it is saying, Ooh, I don't, I don't really want to talk about this. This is icky. You know, I'll, I'll take care of my kids, but I'm telling you, you're not. 
Because you're, you're going to send your kids off to school or you're going to take out a second mortgage and send your kids off to college and they're going to be taught that this is perfectly appropriate and this is wonderful and this is good. They're going to put themselves in the position of defending the victim and guess who's the victimizer? Guess who's the one creating the victim? You are, as the parent that believes that, hey, the, the biblical foundation for a nuclear family is a good thing, right? You're the oppressor. So you better understand this, but there's also some practical things I do. But first, Tina, what did you want to... I just wanted to mention um, one of the things that I feel is so pernicious about this, but also is what makes it effective, is the fact that when you're parsing people down into victim groups and you're, you're basically oppressor and, and oppressed class, then you're gathering around yourself um, allies. And it's, it's about what, whether you believe this way or not, are you an ally to it at least? And so now we've got folks who on on the left and some on the right as well, where um, they want to project themselves as an ally to this way of of thinking. Like, okay, if you um, if if you have a gender dysphoria issue, I'm an ally. You can talk to me. Um, and it's because part of it is they don't want to be one of the people victimizing. But they also don't identify with whatever it is the person falls into, the group they fall into. So the next best thing is to be an ally, is to be someone who helps advocate for them. And so I feel like one of the reasons why our society is getting swept up into all of this is because uh, of our natural inclination to have sympathy and, yeah. and we want to have sympathy for the victim. And so if we can identify the wrong victim and like make you feel certain ways about the victim and certain ways about the oppressor, um, you're you're basically wiring into the person's mind, like hardwiring a certain bent toward um, this way of thinking, which then in turn causes basically a wave in society to head that direction. It, it's it's. Um, well, like we talked about shifting the Overton window, yeah. right? Whereas social there, there are certain things that used to be completely shunned. Um, and then people started to have sympathy for it. They started that, that started to be a groundswell of support. Then it was acceptance. Then it was normalizing. Then it was celebrating. Then it was, this is virtuous. And everybody else who doesn't think this is normal and doesn't celebrate this is a bigot. Oh, and and that's the d direction it goes. It, you can look at every single one of these uh, situations. Yeah. No, I, I think, so let, let's, let's kind of wrap this up in the last few minutes that we have here. The, the first thing to keep in mind here is that really what this comes down to, again, when we talk about worldview, this is like Maslow versus God. Right. Maslow's hierarchy of needs was this whole idea that the top of the pyramid was self-actualization. What what they've now done is they've made your sexuality the core component of your self-actualization because and, and, it, and it's from a from a purely strategic standpoint, it's a brilliant move. Because sex is obviously a driving force within humanity. It is one of the driving forces within humanity. And now what they're telling you is that this is the core part of who you are. You're not beautifully and wonderfully made in the image of God. No, no, no. We're, we're all you know, purposeless creatures that were you know, created over you know, billions of years of evolutionary you know, processes. But here you are now, right? And everything's basically quest for power and quest for pleasure. And we're putting you know, one of the most pleasurable things, right? Sexual activity. We're putting that at the top of the pyramid and the core component of your identity. And then we're going to do all these papers showing that we, we're really doing this from a scientific standpoint. This is just, this is just where the evidence has led, right? It's that 
up against the worldview, which is generally associated with Judeo-Christian values, but you can also find similar themes within Islam. You can find similar themes within, you know, Sikhism. You can find it within, you know, other world religions as well. It's this idea that, no, you're created and you're created for a larger purpose. Okay, and, and, that, and that purpose is, is meaningful. Now, again, for me, that's Christianity. And, and I believe Christianity to be true. And Christianity has something to say about healthy sexual relationships. What I despise is this idea, and what, what quite frankly you should be offended about too, is this idea that because you believe in that biblical worldview, especially one that you're not trying to impose through the law, you're just trying to say, I should be free to live this and I shouldn't be ostracized and I shouldn't be you know, le legally prevented from doing it. You're being told that, well, that's just this evil oppressive system. Whereas this over here, this is perfectly acceptable now to be loved, embraced, and, and cherished by society. No, I'm sorry. Not not only does that not not only does that not weigh out theologically to me, it doesn't weigh out logically either, because we we know the ramifications of what happens when you expose a child to certain things that they are not mentally or physically ready to handle. We know what happens logically, we know what happens empirically. And there's no amount of studies you can throw at me to convince that it's perfectly okay or morally acceptable for an adult to engage in sexual relations with a child. But the only way that you can get to that sort of point where you can actually foment that sort of behavior and treat it as if it's okay is if it's tied to a larger philosophical approach to the overall idea of existence, of identity, of morality, from whence morality comes, and the only way you're going to be able to do that to be effective is if you start it with somebody so young that they do not have the mental capacity in order to distinguish between what has been created and built for their benefit and their growth and what is a perversion of that. So there is a reason why the larger narrative here has to do with the dismantling of the family. There's a larger reason here why the education of your children and the exposure of your children to certain concepts, philosophically and now sexually, is starting at such a young age. And there is a reason why sex is being used. It's because it has such an enormous impact, psychological, physical, emotional, and spiritual impact on, on you as a person. And if they can... If they can inculcate that in a child's mind at a young age, you're going to wind up with a child carrying a whole lot of baggage. And what they're going to say is, no, 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 the baggage is not because you're a victim. The baggage is not because something bad was done to you. The baggage is, is because society and Christianity and capitalism and everything else has foisted upon you these moral narratives, which you should reject so you can fully experience your new sexual identity. Now, if you're an adult with another adult and you want to live out that worldview, legally, I think you should be allowed to do it. I think it's going to have horrible consequences and I would advise against it, but you're an adult. But the moment you try to force that upon a child, you don't get to tell me that society doesn't have an obligation to come in and protect the innocent against those that would exploit and use them to push a philosophy or satisfy a perverse sexual desire. And that's where we're at right now. So if the reason you don't want to talk about it is because you find it icky, grow up and recognize the sort of society that you're living in right now and recognize that there are people out there, there are kids out there that need you to be a voice for them because they can't speak up for themselves and they're going to continue to be abused if you don't do something. 
So defend your kids. Defend kids in general. Work through our legal processes to make sure that inappropriate things like this do not happen. I'm not advocating anyone go out and commit an act of violence against somebody that you suspect for doing something. I'm not saying that. So I don't want my words twisted. But you damn well better be willing to stand up and defend these kids. All right. Yeah. That was that was great. Well, <laughs> no, it, it's 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 again. What's frustrating is it's it's time it's time for parents to wake up to this. And and again, what's going to end up being said by anybody on the left that watches this is he's advocating violence against people. No. What I'm trying to stand speak up against is the fact that you're committing sexual violence against these children. Right, and using the education system in order to condition their minds to accept it. Yeah. And to not even right. see it as to not even see it as abuse. Mm -hmm. So it. yeah. So anyways, that that's where we're at. I know this is a weighty subject. I appreciate you guys sticking with us for for the hour. Um, listen, <clears throat> we're we're going into the Christmas season. I know that we want to we want to talk about happier things, but uh, these things are important, and it's important that you're actually speaking with your kids and having conversations with them too about what's going on within their schools, what's going on within environments or groups that they're in. And I, I just want to tell you too, one one of the best ways you can do because we promise, what are some of the things that you can do? Again, be involved with your be involved with your child's life with respect to asking them what's going on with schools, asking them what's going on with their relationships. I know it's popular within pop culture to to create this image of parents that oh you don't want to be too overbearing, you don't want to have too many rules. I'm going to tell you right now, I have three kids. I have a 20 year old. I have a 17 year old. I have a 14 year old. We've had a lot of rules, which society in general, especially now would consider to be incredibly strict. And if we had made those rules and just said, these are the rules because I say so they would be not only strict, but probably not well received. But here's what I've noticed with my children. They actually respected that the rules were put in place in order to benefit them and they trusted that Tina and myself loved them enough and were concerned enough about their well-being that when we put in these rules and we enforced them and we insisted upon them, and as they got older, we explained the reasons to them, they actually saw it as an act of love and protection coming from their parents. So don't let anybody tell you that you've got to give in to this, this modern view of your 13-year-olds go, going out on dates. You don't. It's not healthy for them, but you are going to have to go through the process and set the conditions to where they understand why you're doing this and why it's for their benefit, not just because you're a tyrant. You need to pay attention on what's going on within your kids' schools, and quite frankly, if you don't like what's going on with your kids' schools, you need to do everything that you can to put yourself in a position to take them out. And the reason I say that is because if you're living in some sort of fairy tale land, where you think you're going to be able to change the entire notion of the curriculum within your schools and what's going on, which has been set up for the last 60 years. If you think you're going to be able to do that by the time your kid graduates, you're nuts. You're deluding yourself. And I, I'm so I say this as a sitting member of the Education Committee in the Virginia House of Delegates, as the chair of the subcommittee on higher education. I am willing to bet that I have considerably more power than almost any other parent out there when it comes to trying to engage with curriculum. And you know what power I have at the end of the day? One vote in 100 in the House of Delegates. One vote in 140 in the entire general legislature. And 141 if you want to account the fact that a governor has to sign it. So listen, if you are really concerned about what's going on in your kid's school, I'm not saying don't, don't be involved. But also don't delude yourself that you think you're going to be able to switch it in a year, two years, or three years. 
that you're just going to be able to undo what it's taken several decades to be able to put before them. Don't think you're going to be able to do that. I'm not going to sit here and lie to you that you can. I'm not going to sit here and lie to you that if you just vote the right way, it's going to fix it all. You're going to have to be the one taking positive action within your child's life in order to protect them. Yes, 100%. And I think it makes perfect sense that if we're looking at the decomposition of the nuclear family, the best way to combat that is never from the top down. It's always from the bottom up. Families need to be fortified. Parents need to care about their children and be involved in their lives, not just ship them off to a state school for eight hours a day, 10 hours a day if they're in after school programs, but actually care enough about their kid that their kid feels comfortable telling them if something's off. And then educating their child to know what it looks like when something's off. So as we wrap up, I think that's such a good like bow on the package to be like, all right, they're coming after the family. The way we combat it is by making our families stronger and putting a, a huge emphasis on the role of parents in their kids' lives. And that's that's just so tied in with strong conservative and Christian principles. It's basically unavoidable. And I think it's one of the strongest arguments conservatives have when it comes to combating this. And that leaves me really hopeful for the future. Honestly, if we can make that happen, I think we have a really good shot at slowing this stuff down, stopping it all together. I think the greatest compliment you'll ever get as a parent is when another parent comes in and compliments your child for just how polite, how grounded they are, um, you know, how self-possessed they are and whatnot. And, and that, that comes from, again, parents being able to not be involved in, the, in their children's life, but also modeling for their children what a healthy relationship looks like between a husband and a wife within a family. So keep that in mind. The kids are always watching and they're always learning. And a lot of what they learn is going to be not just what they hear you say, but what they observe you do. So thank you very much for joining us on this episode. Please consider joining us in the volley chat. Let us know if you actually thought that this conversation was helpful or if there's other uh, ways that we could be going about this that you think would be more effective. Maybe there's questions that you have that you would like us to answer in the future. You can do all that in the volley chat. Once again, thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.
Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.